Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. No doubt she's the toughest person I ever met. That's really, I feel like, what comes through when you spend time with her. Just a toughness on a lot of different levels. RBG, one of this summer's hit films, is the definitive documentary on Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a.k.a. the notorious RBG. The backstory. Stay with us. Full Disclosure is made possible by Elwood Thompson's, the best market in Virginia. You have to visit them at the top of Carytown at Elwood and Thompson Streets, hence the name. It is local produce season. The market has been a RVA fixture since 1989. You have to try the hot breakfast, the Blanchard's coffees. Everything is going on there. Visit them again at the top of Carytown and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining me from NPR in New York City is Julie Cohen, who directed and produced the hit doc RBG about Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, along with Betsy West. In a past life, Julie was a producer at Dateline NBC. According to Variety, RBG just crossed $12 million in domestic box office. Julie, that's a rarity for a documentary. Well, it, it certainly is. We, um, we like to think we have a pretty cool uh, movie star in Justice Ginsburg. Yeah, you and Mr. Rogers, right? I mean, this is exactly, the summer of documentaries. Exactly. Two, two, you know, two pretty unlikely uh, rock stars. Um, almost from the beginning, uh, both of our films premiered at Sundance. And from the beginning, we were sort of paired together. Um, just Justice Ginsburg and, and Mr. Rogers. I kind of can picture somebody coming up with like a claymation death match between the two of them. But, uh, you know, not normally people you'd say in the, together in the same sentence. But this summer is all about uh, RBG and F, FR. I don't know Mr. Rogers' middle initial, so I can't, uh, I can't add that in. So your movie, your documentary was released in May. But what was the inception of this project? When did you realize it was happening? You got the fun? Funding or the okay from RBG herself. I know you two have Columbia University in common. Um, yes. Well, this is a, this like like a lot of documentaries. This was a long time in the making. It was January of 2015 um, when we first started out. Uh, I had actually interviewed Justice Ginsburg for a previous documentary that I that I made um, about a Lower East Side smoked fish store called The Sturgeon Queens. And I've been craving a big heeb ever since. You guys <laughs> need to see that. I, I think it was aired during the Jews of America. I saw you. Um, your name was mentioned in Jews of New York when I saw it in New York City. Uh, yes. Um, the, the Jews of New York was actually, it was also a documentary I, I directed, but not with, uh, RBG in it. Um, and I, I made the Sturgeon Queens, RBG, uh, the justice is a big fan of Russ and Daughters, the smoked fish store that that film was about. And so I interviewed her for that. And my friend and directing partner, Betsy West had interviewed Justice Ginsburg for a big PBS AOL project called Makers that basically told the whole story of the women's rights movement in America, a very comprehensive project that had web elements and a three-hour documentary. Um, and Betsy was the executive producer of that. And she did the sit-down interview with Justice Ginsburg uh, telling all about her role in the women's rights movement. So that stuff had all happened uh, back five or seven years ago. And then subsequently, after those interviews, Justice Ginsburg suddenly kind of like hit pay dirt in terms of becoming this millennial icon figure with all of the memes and the tote bags and like weirdly people getting RBG's face as a tattoo on their arms. There's 
you know, there's at least like a dozen of them that we know of. I have some anecdotal information that that has increased since our uh, new film came out. Anyway, we're starting to notice like, wow, people are really into Justice Ginsburg. And yet even a lot of her biggest fans don't really know the full story of everything that she did for women's equality uh, back when she was a lawyer in the 1970s. So uh, Betsy and I said someone's got to make a full a full-on biographical documentary about Justice Ginsburg, and why shouldn't it be us? And meanwhile, you had no idea at the time. I mean, Scalia is an important uh, person in this, and that they had an unlikely odd couple friendship. Um, you know, they're they're on opposite sides of the ideological uh, spectrum. But he passed away in an untimely death, and that led to then this huge partisan uh, showdown and Mitch McConnell insisting that Obama in his final year in office could not have his appointment in Merrick Garland, and ultimately uh, Neil Gorsuch got that seat. And a, a lot of interest in the Supreme Court all over again since Justice Kennedy announced his retirement and Donald Trump is getting a second pick. And so even since, I think, the May 4th period, you have this this huge echo chamber of interest in Supreme Court, especially this 85-year-old uh, um, you know, person who was put in by Bill Clinton, who was like one of the last redoubts of, of kind of liberal safety on the court. Absolutely. And as you say, all of that stuff has really unfolded um, during first during the period we were making the film and even after it's come out. You know, uh, it seems funny now, but when we started this project in January 2015, when we approached the justice, one little concern on the back of our minds was like, oh, are we a little too late to be doing uh, this project. I mean, after all, Justice Ginsburg has been in the public eye for so many decades, and she was having what seemed like, you know, this huge burst of fame. We thought, oh, are people still going to care by the time uh, we finish a film about her? Um, you know, little did we know that events were going to unfold in such a way that she was going to become more relevant and more important. I think anyone on any side of the of, of the political spectrum would agree on that. And to those who love her, sort of more more loved and worshipped, and perhaps to those who dislike her a little bit more uh, despised and um, a figure to be to be dismissed or insulted. Well, here's what. Um I think about a lot. She's 85 years old, had a tremendous amount of adversity in her life, losing her mother in an early way, the love of her life, her husband, who very much uh, buttressed her and backstopped her career, lost him in, in 2010. Right. Um, she soldiers on. She pulls crazy hours at night. She she does these kind of work benders and sleeps the whole weekend, doesn't take in TV and much. Um, and it got passing mention in your doc, but this is that very rare survivor of pancreatic cancer. Yes, uh, the justice has survived both colon cancer and pancreatic cancer. Um, she is just no doubt she's the toughest person I ever met. Like, that's really, I feel like, what comes through when you spend time with her, just a toughness on, on a lot of different levels. Um, and kind of like no matter what adversity came at her through life, and she's had a fair amount, you know, in the, some of the personal stuff you, you talked about, you know, a lot of the pretty harsh discrimination she faced as a young woman lawyer at a time when uh, people didn't really want women to be lawyers and, um, you know, or the, or the p political opposition, kind of no matter what comes at her, she just soldiers forth. It's maybe not what you expect from an 85-year-old, much less, you know, one who 
weighs. I, I don't know her exact weight, but I'll I'll tell you that it's uh she she she's teeny. Um, and and yet there's just a there's just a personal toughness about her that makes her push forth through through anything. And I think she's proven that um by you know get, getting through two bouts of very serious cancer and really not slowing down much work-wise, just for, forging her way right through it. One of the haunting aspects of the doc, which I just saw and I loved like many people do, I, I know filmmakers hate it when you cite Rotten Tomatoes stats, but you guys are that very rare, you know, certified fresh 93% rating. I mean, this is intensely popular. The New York Times loved it. The Wall Street Journal, uh, there's no paucity of, of praise out there, both from mom and pop and from, you know, crotchety critics. Uh, but I was haunted in how you used uh, her recordings and kind of going up against this austere group of of men in the 1970s and actually the quip that Justice Rehnquist fired back and kind of you know, almost in a belittling way. Aren't you content enough with Susan B. Anthony's face on the coin? And then fast forward to her being sworn in by Justice Rehnquist. Uh, absolutely. Um, you know... One of the things that came out pretty early in researching this project, um, we had the opportunity to to listen to um, the oral arguments, the six oral arguments that she made before the Supreme Court in the 1970s as a young lawyer fighting uh, what at the time was a very radical fight um, coming to the court with this notion that men and women should be equal under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, um, uh, a clause which had generally been understood to be about racial equality, she uh, she took that argument and made it about gender equality as well. Um, listening to her uh, make those cases, do those oral arguments, like there were a number of things that occurred to us. First of all, the toughness is there. She's just like, you know, most lawyers, I, I've been in the Supreme Court when oral arguments are happening uh, a number of times. I used to produce a show about the Supreme Court um, for Court TV in the 90s. Um, I'll throw on top of that that actually my my dad was an appellate lawyer for many years and argued several cases before the Supreme Court. And I went as a child to hear him make those arguments. It is so intimidating in there. And most lawyers get a little flustered and thrown off. You know, the, 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 ju- the justices are interrupting you in the middle of a sentence to start like firing questions at you. You know, it's m- for most lawyers who come in there, you know, it's, it's probably the, it's one of the biggest days of your life. You're trying your best to make an argument. People are like, you know, barraging you with unexpected questions, trying to trip you up. That's the whole, you know, that's part of the game. And and, and plus, like, she's a, a woman and a tiny petite woman at that. The, ju- the justices are way high up above you. Like, you could let them get you down. But she just seems, you know, the first maybe three or four minutes of her first oral argument, maybe she seems a little nervous. And ever after that, she's so tough. She's so ready with every answer. You know how prepared she is. We interviewed um, one of her co-counsels, a woman named uh, Brenda Feigen, who was in the courtroom with her with all of the casebooks open, ready to give, you know, RBG sites if she needed them. She didn't turn to her a single time. She's just like forging ahead. Then you've got what you were talking about. The justices at that time in the 70s, like women's rights was such a confusing notion to everyone. It was something that a lot of men wanted to kind of dismiss and, and belittle. Um, and they're pretty condescending to her. We, we noticed that pretty, pretty strikingly when we listened through to those oral arguments. I mean, a lot of, a lot of it was like they're in the middle of some arcane 
legal kind of side street, so we couldn't include it in the film. But we found a, a number and we used them, including that great remark uh, from, at the time, Justice, uh, he wasn't chief yet, uh, Re- Rehnquist, um, saying, like, you know, she's like, we want equality for women under the law. And he's like, well, can't, can't you just settle for, you know, having Susan B. Anthony's face on the dollar? And then, that, like, and then there's... Uh, there's like two and a half minutes of them all just like chuckling, you know, in this like really annoying, condescending way. And she just de- she just doesn't let that um, get her down. You know, there's another uh, one where Potter Stewart says to her, um, you know, she's saying men and women, you know, a, a woman defendant should have the right to have some women on a jury because that's a jury of, of their peers. And sort of trying to stroke away the whole women's liberation movement in one sweep, Justice Stewart says to her, like, well, I thought the new theory was that there's no difference between men and women. And she says back to her, to him with so much toughness, like, well, I'm not aware of that new theory. And she says it with like a lot of edge in her voice. When I we, I, I look back at this and I can, you know, everybody can remember 1981. It took that long in our history for the first woman to make it up to the highest court in the land. Right, right. So this is a period where it's nine guys, where women's rights like seems like kind of a weird, a, a weird notion, certainly as a constitutional matter, like, well, it's clearly the Constitution shouldn't be about that, that kind of trivial thing. And she just like doesn't take it, like no matter w- how much they try to you know, kind of dismiss her. She comes back so tough and she talks in a tone of voice that lawyers, men or women, just generally don't take in that room. Uh, when we had a screening of the film, a, pr- a preview screening in D.C., and our audience was all, was almost all lawyers. Uh, Justice Breyer was there and a number of, um, you know, kind of big time appellate attorneys came. That line, they like they like loved it. Like the, the rest of the, you know, most of our audience don't really get that. But those are people that have been in that room and know that's not usually how you speak in there. And her just being kind of like, you know, the badass that she's gotten a lot of credit recently for being even back in, I think this was probably like 1976 when the, when that uh, case was, like people people were just loving it. Full disclosure on Robin Farzad, we are talking to Julie Cohen, who directed and produced the hit documentary RBG in theaters now. It's had quite a summer. It's about Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. This was your project alongside Betsy West. I have to read the review from Joe Morgenstern at the Wall Street Journal, whose stuff I love. He says, what makes this documentary memorable is its portrait of a woman with an exceptional intellect to be sure, but also a lifelong capacity for staggering amounts of minutely detailed, unswervingly purposeful work. There wasn't any, she was so dispassionate in this that I have to confess, there are times watching this doc that you almost want to fall asleep. There isn't anything excitable about her. Maybe the most excitable thing she said was during the election where she slipped and said that, you know, maybe Donald Trump is not the most trustworthy person in the world, but that has served her well. Uh, over her years of of both arguing in front of the court and being one of the people seated up there. Well, you know, she's like, she's cool as a cucumber. You know, her her mother told her, uh, don't, basically, don't let yourself get consumed by useless emotions. And she counts anger as a useless emotion. Uh, Envy, greed, you know, there's a number that she she throws in there. So, like, she, she sort of, consciously tries to be unflappable. And for the most part, she really is unflappable. How is it that Bill Clinton did not know who she was, really, was not on the immediate radar when he had that vacancy to fill? Um, 
you know, early in his presidency, that it took a lot of lobbying from Ruth Bader Ginsburg's late husband, Marty, who was a prolific and powerful tax attorney in Manhattan, to kind of get her in front of him. Was it was it true that he was gunning for Governor Cuomo and Governor Cuomo didn't want it? Yes, that's right. I mean, he he had had the thought, and a lot of people. That was sort of that was actually conventional wisdom at the time. I I remember the '90s pretty well. Um, people did have the thought that Mario Cuomo um, could make a great Supreme Court justice, and and that was um, what Bill Clinton had in mind. I mean, uh, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had a relatively low profile at that point as a as a federal appeals court judge on the D.C. circuit. There was actually another um, great woman judge on that circuit named Patricia Wald, who apparently was was in contention as well. Uh, RBG by that time, by 93, was 60 years old. Um, so that was considered, you know, there is a conventional wisdom like, oh, you want to pick a young justice so that they'll be around for for quite a period of time. Of course, you know, now that she served for 25 years, I think uh, Justice Ginsburg thinks she has, uh, uh, you know, has had uh, a good uh, record on on that front and is quite, quite proud of her longevity on the court. Um, And basically, uh, RBG's husband, Marty Ginsburg, a very prominent uh, tax attorney um, who, by the time of uh, 93, was a professor at Georgetown Law School. He had followed her down to D.C. Um, when she got her appeals court uh, job. He's this super affable, you know, funny, delightful guy and just like a real schmoozer who everybody in D.C. legal circles and political circles kind of knew. And he was quite convinced that his wife should be, would be, and deserve to be the next Supreme Court justice and basically was going to do everything he could to make that happen. He talked to, you know, everyone he knew and everybody knew him and liked him and, you know, up to and including uh, in in the White House and basically got Ruth Bader Ginsburg a hearing. Now, that didn't mean that he, you know, that she... uh, that he got her the job. She got herself the job because, you know, but she he, he got it to the point where Bill Clinton felt that he had to meet her. And he did meet her and was very impressed by her. You know, both of them, um, among other things, are real kind of constitutional law nerds and, you know, with experience um, as, as professors of constitutional law. So uh, I think they kind of related to one another on that on that front, he told us for the interview that within 15 minutes of, of talking to her, he knew he was going to name her. But I think their conversation went on for another hour or so just because he was enjoying kind of turning over the finer points of the law with her. You know, what's amazing to me is her ascension. And you know, you have you have a kind of a begrudging admiration from Senator Orrin Hatch. They're pretty much admitting that, look, we're not ideologically similar at all, but I appreciate your 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 gumption and behind them. Uh, you know, watching this, we noticed Elena Kagan as well, who was like, yes. who's in the pipeline to become yes, a Supreme a Court justice herself. Yes, a staffer on the Judiciary Committee at that point. Yeah. But this confirmation was in proximity to the really bruising confirmation battle over Clarence Thomas. And I can't help but wonder how how different these guys are, what one came to represent for ultimately the, the you know, the, the, the movement of, of, of kind of Me Too versus what Ruth Bader Ginsburg has for women and, and civil rights activists across the country. Did she ever want to go on the record about her relationship with Clarence Thomas? 
Um, you know, she didn't, we didn't try too hard to push that sort of thing. We didn't think we were going to get much of an answer. Um, but here, here's what I'll say on that one in specific. I mean, you know, we have the footage of um, the groups of uh, the group of justice, the class of justices every year have their official portraits taken. And, you know, there's a fair amount of photos and footage of those little sessions where you see them interacting. And um, I kind of know I, I noted some fairly positive interaction between those two. I don't know. You know, keep in mind that, as you pointed out, uh, Justice Ginsburg was extremely close personal friends with Justice Scalia. Justice Scalia, in turn, is also, you know, was also friendly on a personal level with Justice Thomas. I don't I would assume they may have socialized together. And I, I didn't sense that there I don't sense any any real hostility there. I think making the um, the connection between the two confirmation hearings it, it is important. You know, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's was was the next one after Clarence Thomas. And I think there was pretty serious interest on everyone's parts, uh, both political parties and the Senate Judiciary Committee as a whole kind of wanting like not a big, bruising, painful, like circus. Yeah, uh, I mean, Thomas, Thomas in 91 was 52 to 48. That's a pretty narrow confirmation. Yeah, that's a pretty Gins- narrow confirmation. Ginsburg was and- 96 to 3, right? 96 to 3. So that's uh that's pretty that's pretty good, pretty um uh you know, a pretty serious It's kind of quaint. It's kind of quaint to imagine it today. Could you imagine anyone getting a 96 to 3 vote? No. <laughs> Everything uh, no. Is so I, polarized. I think I, I just think um you know, I don't think it's going to happen uh for a while. It's not going to, you know, as we know, uh where uh we have we've got a new appointment coming up and we're on the way to another confirmation hearing. I think um you know, unless something unforeseen were to come out about uh, the nominee, I think uh, Trump's nominee is almost certain to be confirmed. Um, and I'm also almost certain that it will not be a- anywhere near that degree of consensus, um, you know, on, on the appointment. Not, not only that, I mean, I wasn't paying attention much to the granularity of the, of the you know, Ginsburg hearings. I was late in high school and whatnot. Uh, but she was unusually for now, actually outspoken about her position on Roe v. Wade. You just would not see that in the present day. Everybody is so gnomic and cryptic now by design. Yes, it's hard to it's hard to p- picture that happening now. I, you know, on either side, because like, let's face it, we're about to have a confirmation hearing um, where it's quite likely that the the nominee is going to be someone who um, strongly opposes Roe v. Wade, and yet I think it's unlikely that they're going to speak about that in as open terms as as uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg at the time, Judge Ginsburg did about her feelings about Roe versus Wade. It was a a departure from her attitude, from from her uh, her overall demeanor during those confirmation hearings. It's not like she was like running out, like spouting her mouth about her theories on every legal thing. Um, she sees herself as a teacher. Uh, and I think she was just going to use that opportunity in front of the cameras and kind of in the spotlight to just say very unequivocally that she thought reproductive freedom was very central to women's rights. It's a you know, we, that's why it's included in our film. It's a it's a very strong statement. And it was a surprising state. It was a surprising statement at the time. It's a surprising statement now. Julie, when did you wrap up the film? Finally, I just want to get a timestamp. Yeah. So we finished, I mean, you know, we finished shooting in 
like August of 2017, we basically locked the film in like uh, kind of like October 2017. Basically, it was it was, you know, well into the Trump administration, but before the whole Me Too uh, time's up thing had unfolded. And was there any attempt even kind of in the late innings to get her to comment on what happened with Gorsuch and Garland? Um, well, Gorsuch came up, came up, came up after, um, after the film, uh, Garland, we didn't. Well, didn't Trump, didn't Trump put in Gorsuch, was it beginning of 2017? I'm sorry. So maybe, did I, sorry, you're you're, you're correct. You're correct. Gorsuch was already, Gorsuch, I've got, yes, Gorsuch. No, we didn't, uh, we didn't really talk to her much about Gorsuch. She has made a point about Garland. Um, the, the only thing she had said about Garland's, um, you know, the, the, the failure of, um, the, uh, that, att- that attempt to get him to be the Supreme Court justice when, when Obama had named him and the, the, um, Republicans, uh, getting in the way of that happening as the replacement, uh, for her, her close, uh, friend Scalia, her point uh, on that, she, she has made the point kind of, in response to those who say that she should have stepped down during the Obama administration so that Obama could have appointed a replacement, her, her answer is, well, but Obama did appoint a Supreme Court justice and look how look how that turned out. But I know it's uh, academic now, but would they have begrudged her if this was, you know, Obama wins the election in 2012 and suppose he did this in 2013 or 2014, not uh, at any time where it would have been irrefutable. I mean, after all, she was back then, she's 80 years old and she's recovering from two bouts with cancer. She loses her husband, breaks her heart in 2010. And now when you look at the the net net of it is I'm reminded of an article I met I read over the weekend about the hugely parlous uh, state of infrastructure in and around New York City. And there's this one bridge in New Jersey that, uh, you know, is, is, is sledgehammered together. It's barely kept together. And you think about the liberal coalition <laughs> and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a really frail, albeit persistent 85-year-old, is keeping together yeah. whatever's left of uh, the liberal presence on the court. Yes. Well, certainly there are a lot of liberals who are, you know, quite openly angry with her on this issue. I've certainly heard a lot of people say that, um, you know, since the film has come out, like, hey, I really love her, but really think she should have uh, stepped down a few a few years before the end, the end of the Obama administration. Um, you know, I think she was thinking first 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 she makes the argument that she doesn't sort of believe in in this whole like oh you step down during the party of the person that appointed you like that that whole thing like she 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 likes to dream of the of the court as being maybe a little bit less um tied in with partisan issues than than it is than it is now certainly or has become or however you want to look at it um I think another way to look at it, though, and a probably more realistic point to make, is that like many in the nation, she was pretty sure that the next president after Obama was going to be a Democrat. Of course, she was completely incorrect, as were many prognosticators. But I think you really have to factor that in when you I think she wasn't thinking like, oh, well, I better step down because there's about to be a Trump presidency. Um, I think you could sort of connect, uh, you could connect that decision um, not to step down and maybe some of the um, inappropriate uh, remarks about Trump as uh, seeming a little different in the context of those, you know, most of the nation believing like, well, there's no way that uh, Donald Trump is going to be the president. 
So I understand now August 5th, 1993 is when she assumed office. That makes it a crisp 25 years that she will have served. Um, 25 years. Coming up in a few weeks, and, and that'll be marked in the press. Um, one, of the, one of the odd things is I'm, I'm remembering the footage from your documentary, and, and Jimmy Carter gave her her, you know, pass through as a as a judge and that was an incredible opportunity for her but it took a good almost like a decade and a half for Bill Clinton to come into office and then be made to realize that there's someone like this in the system to be promoted up to the Supreme Court it's old hat now in that we've had Sotomayor and and Elena Kagan in the court and it's not just a matter of looking at you know the long gap between Sandra Day O'Connor and Ginsburg but I, you know, that's saying a lot. Looking back, I am struck, struck, struck. If there's anything I took away from this documentary is the extent of the hardship that she was forged in. I mean, she was born in Brooklyn to Russian Jewish immigrants. Her older sister died when she was young. And her mother, uh, who was the, uh, you know, the, the, the rock behind her, the persistent rock, died just before Ruth Bader Ginsburg graduated from high school. Then she earned her bachelor's degree at Cornell University. And was a wife and mom before even starting at Harvard, where she was one of the few women in her class. She went into the detail of how difficult and intimidating that was. For her husband's sake, she transferred to Columbia Law School, where she graduated tied for tops in her class. That is a tremendous amount of volatility, saying the obvious, between high school and kind of, you know, finishing school for a person to then persevere after that and become a Supreme Court justice. Absolutely. And keep in mind, one other factor is that when uh, Ruth and Marty Ginsburg were in Harvard Law School together, Marty developed testicular cancer. And so she's going to law school. He ended up he ended up still graduating with his class. She she basically nursed him through. He was getting uh, there was no chemotherapy back then. He was getting radiation treatment. She helped him through that. He, he was too ill to go to class, so she went to his classes for him, typed up his notes, like got, or organized his friends to help, you know, help him study, and she's raising a toddler, and she was on law review. What I, mean, brought, like, what, I mean, what brought me to— She's not an ordinary what, person. What brought me to tears in that is, is uh, their sacrifice for each other. You, you know, you yeah. can talk in sociology class about a peer marriage. This is truly a peer marriage where they made a compact to each other, you know, at college— they helped each other. She talked about how um, I, you know, I crammed and did everything until four o'clock when the babysitter left, and that was my time with my daughter. And then she stayed up all night, burning the candle on both ends. And I'm thinking about the sacrifices that Marty made for her, being unusually um, enlightened for a man of that era, a powerful attorney. I mean, after all, in 1960, it was none other than Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter who who rejected Ginsburg for a clerkship because of her gender. Right. But she has a forward thinking enough husband to say, you know what, we will we will make this work, even if it's a New York, D.C., Northeast corridor thing. She transfers out of Harvard Law and graduates from Columbia Law, largely for his sake. Right. Oh, absolutely. For his sake. It was like, you know, he had he had this opportunity and um, she was like, "Okay, I guess I'll go graduate from Columbia. I mean, the truth is she she tried to get Harvard to agree to give her a Harvard law degree, even though she was going to do her last year at Columbia. Uh, they said no way. They later came to regret it and actually like tried to give her. Tried to like shove uh, it down her throat. Here, give, take it. They tried to give her a degree <laughs> after the fact. Uh, she considered it, but Marty said to her, no, 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 hold out for the honorary degree, which she did. And she ultimately did get an honorary degree from Harvard Law School. So now she has both Columbia and Harvard Law uh, degrees. But um, yes, when it was necessary, you know, she was more than happy to sacrifice for him. 
Um, you know, truthfully, wives have been doing that for their husbands from the dawn of civilization. But what's unusual in this uh, in this marriage was how much and how how sort of enthusiastically he sacrificed for her. You know, when she first moved down in 1980, she gets this federal court judgeship. Very cool for a woman to be getting. I mean, it's a great job anyway. And so cool for a woman to be getting that job. And, um, you know, he's a partner at a law firm at that point. And uh, he just picked up his bags and was like, nope, you know, I'm going to I'm going to move down to to D.C. And she said that people would say to her like, oh, it's, um, you know, it must be really stressful for you commuting back and forth you know, to New York all the time to be with Marty when you're working, uh, working here in D.C. And she said it just didn't occur to people. No, actually, he he left his job and he moved down here to be with me. You know, watching your doc in the few minutes we have left, I'm struck by how homogeneous this group has become now, even though that there is diversity, uh, both racially and gender wise on the court right now, um, even though it's swinging right. Uh, these people are largely the product of Yale and Harvard law schools, and there is a, a, a certain amount of pedigree and tracking, and you even interviewed their uh, clerks who hopefully in the back of their minds, they want to be on some sort of track to becoming considered for Supreme Court justice. But then you go to the Supreme Court's website. Are there qualifications to be a justice? Do you have to be a lawyer or attend law school to be a Supreme Court justice? Actually, the Constitution no. does not specify yeah, no, qualifications for justices such as age, education, profession, or native-born citizen. A justice does not have to be a lawyer or law school graduate, but all justices have been trained in the law. Many of the 18th and 19th century justices studied law under a mentor because there were few law schools in the country. I mean, frankly, right. you could be a pizza store owner, a populist man on the street thing that, you know, and, and if you had a president with a gumption to nominate you, nothing is stopping him. Uh, yes, that's right. I mean, uh, although, you know, it hasn't happened in such a long time that uh, and, and there did used to be, as you say, like this um, very different tradition. Actually, this was true and may still be true in Virginia. Interestingly, a lot longer than in a lot of other states where sort of like being a uh, an, an apprentice to a lawyer in the same way you'd like apprentice yeah, with country, like a blacksmith or something. An old country barrister has taken uh, me on like yeah, Billy that Budd. Whole, <laughs> that whole thing um, was, you know, was was actually how a lot of practicing lawyers, uh, you know, d- did it back back in the day, not, not going to law school at all. I mean, truthfully, that would probably make more sense in this day and age when law school costs so much money and you, where, where, where so many um, recent law graduates are, are stuck with, um, you know, kind of monstrous loans uh, to repay. But be that as it may, um, Justice Ginsburg right now, I believe, is the only justice who doesn't have her main, you know, juris doctorate, you know, her JD degree from from Yale or Harvard. And that's kind of silly because she actually went to Harvard Law School for her first two years and has her honorary degree there. Harvard wants to claim her, actually. Uh, yeah. In the trickle of time we have left, I would like to ask you about the entrepreneurial process in this. You and I have talked, um, you know, in a past life in Manhattan about getting funding for documentaries, getting funding for public television series and the like. You've now really broken into the big time. Um, this is going to get Oscar consideration. I'm not being you know, presumptuous by saying that. It was a hit at Sundance. It's being talked about. It's being raved about. People are actually, young people are going to the movies to see it again. I mean, movie theaters are having a difficult summer, but not with your doc. Um, what does this do for you in terms of the future? Does this open more doors? I, I understand that you involved CNN and Magnolia Pictures. Kind of walk me through it. Well, CNN Films actually jumped in quite early and financed the entire film. Um, we approached them at a time when Justice Ginsburg had given us a very, 
loose sort of like, okay, you can go forward with this project, but I won't talk to you for another two years. Um, And uh, Betsy and I went to CNN Films and said, look, we really think this could happen, but we have to we have to move forward. Could you give us a small amount of funding to start pursuing this and start doing interviews um, and, and hiring crews and doing and doing interviews on this project that are other than interviewing the justice herself, because we think that's the way to proceed and to make this happen. And they thought it over briefly and they said, OK, it seems like a, that seems like a risk worth taking, because if this project were to come together, it would be really, really cool. So um, so they even did the unusual thing of giving us a small chunk of funding for something that was like far completely notional. Sure. I mean, it was a it was a totally conditional project. Yes. I mean, we, you know, we needed to have her, um, but we um, we just uh, we just think we, we just thought she sort of laid out her her thought that, like, if we if we were serious, we should start making, um, you know, putting the putting a film together before she was going to participate in it, in it. So um, we did that. In the end, things kind of came to as things were coming together nicely in in, in two additional chunks. They ended up uh, funding funding the full film um, at Sundance. Uh, they with the uh, with the sales agent uh, Synetic sold it to Magnolia and Participant uh, together. And then um, you know who who made um, you know the very smart call to release it quite quickly. You know usually films out of Sundance, sure. you know which is late January, end up getting released more towards the end of the year. Uh, but I think they understood understood that um, you know the, the late late spring is when the Supreme Court is most on everyone's minds because that's when the big rulings come down. Also they had the thought that like this is a real intergenerational mother-daughter type type thing. So wouldn't it be great to have it out for Mother's Day? They actually said that when when we ver- very first met with them before they'd even bought the film. We we're like, uh oh, huh, that's interesting. Um, and uh, so that's kind of how that uh, how that process unfolded, and then they uh, worked very aggressively on a whole release and marketing um, strategy. And you know, other than of course, you know, there there aren't TV ads for for a film like this. It's really much more about getting the word out in a variety of of, of different ways. Um, but revenue revenue for you right now in terms of box office is box office. This is not like Netflix is fronting you a chunk of money to have streaming rights. Or when does it drop on Netflix? Uh, the, well, actually, the next um, the next step is going to be um, both. Uh, you know, CNN is going to broadcast this in the fall, so mm-hmm. it will be on television, and then there will be both. Um, you know, streaming, uh, both paid and, um, you know, pe- people can, can, there's going to be pay-per-view. There's, there ultimately, I believe will be some free streaming. There's going to be DVDs for sale. We have an uh, unusual situation of be- having a very broad demographic generationally. Um, you know, a lot of people, um, in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s are quite interested in this film and have been seeing it in theaters. But that means that actually people will want DVDs. You know, there are going to there is going to be a market of people wanting to buy DVDs, not just uh, watching it through a streaming service. At the same time, we've got a lot of uh, 20s and 30s uh, folks who, who would rather see film streaming. So, um, you know, all of that happens. It's so complicated. There and has that of- has that been an education for you? I mean, in the past life, again, when we think back to your time doing things for PBS New York or PBS Nationally or Dateline, you're dealing with central sources of funding, maybe getting some some people on the side, uh, some endowments, some foundations. Now uh, the project is in the money, uh, but, um, you know, you're you're. It's it's not just a monolithic thing. I mean, young people, millenn- millennials aren't going to the 
the movie theaters. They want to buy it on iTunes. There's so many different channels that you could go to with people and the delay between kind of the theatrical release and the cable paid release and the cable unpaid release and then iTunes and Netflix must be hugely confusing. It's very complicated. Fortunately for us, it's not, you know, none of this is 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 my decision or mine and Betsy's decision. This is all, um, you know, our sort of team of interwoven uh, distributors that are involved um, are, are all, you know, know how to do that stuff. Our, our business, the film business, particularly the independent film and documentary business has become quite complicated and is rapidly changing. So having people who really understand what's going on and knowing what the best timing is for everything and how to, you know, I think the um, the paid online distribution is happening relatively soon, probably at some point at the end of the summer, people will be able to buy um, buy the film to watch online. So, you know, there's a lot of entities figuring out what the best possible time for that is and how it all how it all interacts um, with each other. But at this point, uh, you know, um, amazingly, we're now heading into uh, this weekend is going to be week 11 and it's still it's still in a lot of theaters. So uh, wow. we think that's we think that's pretty cool. And what we're getting that you really don't see too much at the movies. But what we're getting a lot of is repeat viewers, people that come to see it in the theater and then like come back sometimes the next day with their mother or their husband or their kids. And are like, now I want to I want to see it again. I mean, speaking so, of speaking of which, did the justice herself see it with her daughter and son and granddaughter? Did you get uh, any any intelligence back on that? Yes. Well, we were we were there when the justice saw it for the first time, which was at Sundance. So that was super exciting. She came to our world premiere at Sundance and uh, she had not seen the film at all before. So that was nerve wracking, but great. Uh, she really she really loved it. Um, soon thereafter, yes, she brought, um, she brought her, you know, everyone lives in different places, but she did have her daughter come down to a screening that was, um, done just before the release in, in Washington, D.C. Her son saw it when it showed in Chicago, her granddaughter that she has uh, a couple grand she has a number of grandchildren there's one who's in the film uh, actually both that granddaughter Clara and another granddaughter Mimi are both um, New Yorkers so each of them saw it at different uh, New York uh, pre-release um, screenings that we uh, invited them to so wow. you know the whole family the whole family has seen it I mean you know actually a universal remark from the actual family is that their favorite part is seeing Marty Really? Um, not yeah. not Kate McKinnon. That was ridiculous from SNL. See, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who doesn't even watch TV, and the, the grandkids are wondering, that is, her granddaughter's wondering, does she even know how to turn on a TV? I know the news hour is on when she's in the gym, but... <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, certainly showing her, uh, showing her the Kate McKinnon um, impression of herself on Saturday Night Live... I mean, you know, there's a lot of experiences that you have making documentary films, but like, there's never going to be a better. I, I know I'm, sure, I'm never going to sure, have a better. I'm sure, by the way, you can that. make that shidduch because if I remember correctly, Kate McKinnon is a product, a proud product of Columbia. As now, you teach at Columbia. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's at Columbia. Idea. Right. Make it happen. <laughs> Julie Cohen, who along with Betsy West, directed and produced the hit doc RBG about Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It was delightful. You must see it. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here, Robin. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks this week to NPR New York City. You can catch us and love us on NPR One, and it is a fine app. Uh, give me props on that app, and subscribe to this great show on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. We're also on Facebook.com slash FullDRadio and Twitter at FullDRadio. I am Robin Farzad, back with you next week. Robin Farzad.